Welcome to Conversations Live. For more than a decade, we've brought you the best in books, entertainment, celebrity interviews, and current events. When the movers and shakers of the world have something to say to you, they say it to us first. Here's your host, Cyrus Webb. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Conversations Live. I'm your host, Cyrus Webb. Glad you all could join us once again. But for a radio audience here in Mississippi at WYAD 94.1 FM and WYADonline.com, we're glad that you all could be with us. Also, tuning in to our online affiliates around the world, we're glad you all could be with us as well. One of the topics we may hear a lot about, especially when it comes to large events, is about the influx and the exploitation when it comes to sex trafficking. Our next guest, though, helps us to put this conversation in an interesting perspective in his new book. We're excited to welcome Gregory Mitchell to our program. Gregory's new book is called Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths About Sex Trafficking. We'll talk to Gregory not only about the writing of the book, but also what it's been like for him to have conversations literally around the world about this topic and what he hopes you as readers are able to take away from it. If you guys are just now finding out about Panics, Without Borders. We'll let you know how to get your own copy of it and stay connected with Gregory as well. Gregory, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's an honor. Thanks. Well, Gregory, I was saying to you before you went on here that here in Mississippi where I live, I love my state, but we don't normally, when it comes to football games, which is what we've kind of become known for, right, we, we don't really mm-hmm. think about sex trafficking. It is interesting that when I was reading this book, the time that we hear the conversations a lot in the news are when we have like the state fair and that kind of thing uh, coming in. But what was it like for you to look at this connection, Gregory, about – you know, these, these large sporting events like the World Cup, uh, and what people perceive happens when it comes to the increase in sex trafficking. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the uh, what, what I discovered over the course of writing the book uh, is that even though we often see these sensationalistic headlines around major events like the World Cup, uh, the Olympics, uh, the Super Bowl, of course, every year, um, as well as other large events, political conventions and so forth, uh, or state fairs, as you mentioned, uh, is that we see a lot of panicky headlines and we see a lot of uh, people anticipating that there's going to be uh, an increase in sex trafficking or sexual exploitation. And what I discovered over the years that I was working on the book is that um, what does increase is not sex trafficking. Uh, it is violence against sex workers, particularly from the police. And that happens around these events because there is uh, a lot of uh, interest, uh, often in cleaning things up before uh, the journalists and the spectators and everyone get there. And so that means uh, that there are often a number of brothel raids uh, or increased policing. And depending on the location um, that we're talking about, because of course these sporting events happen all over the world, sometimes that um, can be incredibly violent, including um, physical assault, sexual assault, and so forth by the police. Um, And so it's sex workers um, oftentimes uh, who are not necessarily uh, being exploited, but who end up kind of becoming collateral damage um, because everyone is uh, so worried about the sex trafficking, which then doesn't actually increase. I should also add, this does not mean that there is not sexual exploitation or forced prostitution out there. I have seen more than my share of that. It's just that it's misguided when we think that uh, it's happening around these major events. 
And Gregory, I have to say, and you and I didn't discuss this, but it's interesting when you were just talking, when I thought about one of the things, one of the examples that stands out to me from the book is what you record from Brazil almost a decade ago uh, in 2012, uh, where there is this crackdown. And I want to talk about examples like that because it is interesting. It almost sounds like, and I thought about this when I was reading the book, so I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost seems like the selling of fear is kind of what gives license to this increased one um, police presence and activity, uh, but also, as you mentioned, though, the propensity of violence against these individuals. Is that something that you that what you would say? Oh yes, yeah, you've got that absolutely right. So it might be worth um, going back to the beginning for me uh, with my journey with this book, which uh, was uh, in Brazil. I had been working. Um, in Brazil on uh, what was my first book, which dealt with uh, male sex workers and the development of, a, of a gay sex tourism industry in Brazil. And I had been working there since about 2006. And then by the time we were approaching um, uh, the end of my time when I was working on my dissertation, we knew that uh, Brazil was gonna be hosting uh, the World Cup um, and then two years later that it would be hosting the Summer Olympics. And so what began to happen was that as I was wrapping up one project, I was kind of looking around and started to realize that there were suddenly a lot more police in these red light areas. Prostitution is not illegal in Brazil. Um, and so they were going in and they started raiding um, brothels and raiding sex tourist bars. And this is, you know, all over on the heterosexual side. These were female sex workers and male clients, and they began arresting them. Um, and uh, then they would release them because there was no, um, there was no crime. Um, uh, but then the media would report it as a sex trafficking bust. And then what I found is that um, in, in many cases, the police were um, uh, beating and sexually assaulting the women, stealing their belongings and so forth. And so I began to work with colleagues from um, a number of uh, other countries who were there, and we formed a, a research collective called the Observatorio de Prostitution, um, or um, like a prostitution policy watch, um, to look into this and to, uh, to attempt to collaborate and to share our data um, because with 12 people, we knew we could do a much uh, bigger collaborative study to really be uh, looking at this question to say, why do people think that this increases and what actually is happening? And so we were able to be in um, lower tier, low income brothels um, and outdoor venues, as well as more middle class venues. And then also some of the really um, high end um, venues that cater to tourists and politicians and celebrities. Justin Bieber was famously photographed leaving one of the uh, venues where we worked. Um, and then that was really how it began. And then I realized that this myth um, about trafficking uh, had really been debunked uh, many times over. Uh, you can uh, go and find uh, you know, other groups, um, sex workers, social scientists, various people uh, in all sorts of uh, news outlets ranging from the New York Times, the Washington Post, but also uh, like Reason Magazine, which is a, a right-leaning libertarian magazine, 
So it's been documented all over. Um, but what I wanted to do was to say, why is it that we see this thing up over and over again in these different countries? And so I began to set out to travel to recent and upcoming host countries for the World Cup and the Olympics. And so in that capacity, I went to Russia uh, and Doha, uh, Japan, uh, the United Kingdom, South Africa, uh, and uh, of course had my initial work in Brazil. Uh, so it became a really global adventure of traveling and speaking to uh, sex workers, but also missionaries, FBI agents, um, folks at Scotland Yard, politicians, um, uh, healthcare workers, and so forth. So, Gregory, with that being said, and it kind of dovetails with another thought I had about the book. So I, I'm sure the audience is already wondering why. What's the why behind this? Why, why are they doing it? And so did you find, as you were kind of able to experience these things, to hear these examples like you chronicle in Panics Without Borders, that a lot of it had to just basically do with power? Yeah, absolutely. I think we have um, – we have to define the, the they. Who is it that is um, – doing it because I've talked about the police, but we have to think about who is fueling this ever expanding notion of sex trafficking uh, because of course there's competing definitions. Um, and so we have some people who I think, uh, you know, are really well-intentioned um, uh, anti-trafficking uh, groups or anti-prostitution groups. And so this includes um, uh, some evangelical Christian organizations. It also includes some anti-prostitution feminist organizations, um, uh, as well as uh, politicians and uh, the police, as I mentioned, uh, sometimes business developers. So we get a very strange uh, set of bedfellows here, right? We don't normally think about radical feminists and evangelical Christians, you know, working hand in, in glove, and yet around this common issue, um, they come to work together. Now, some of them, I think, are genuinely concerned and are really looking to try to um, stop sexual exploitation. However, for some of the groups, in particular the police, um, they get big overtime um, budgets, budget increases, money for new equipment. There are also organizations that um, frankly pop up and they do consulting about how to spot the signs uh, of trafficking. And so it's really just crept to such a, a huge degree that even I think my favorite example of, of uh, panic around major events that illustrates this uh, would have to be the eclipse, which you may remember there was a total uh, solar eclipse in 2017 that sliced across a narrow band of uh, the middle of, of the country. And uh, uh, suddenly the media uh, began running all of these headlines about how there was going to be sex trafficking at the eclipse. And so the attorneys general in Kentucky Wyoming and Nebraska began to put on workshops and request money for additional policing um, for their budgets um, so that they could stop this sex trafficking that they imagined would happen. Um, and the frenzied headlines, you know, warned about this two and a half minutes of darkness 
where children might be abducted. And so you can really get a sense of the kind of panic and who actually profits off of that. Well, there was no sex trafficking at the eclipse, um, but you did see, uh, you know, police and other NGOs and organizations lining their pockets. And and you do kind of show the how two things are running at the same time, Gregory, in the book. In the chapter, Eat, Pray, Labor, in talking about what's happening in Cotter, you say this, and that made a note of it, Cotter contains an inversion of Western expectations about gender, while sex trafficking dominates policy, funding, and popular representations of human trafficking, Cotter is a location where labor trafficking of migrant men is beyond prominent. So is it almost like raising noise and smoke about one thing to cover up another thing that's happening? Uh, in in many cases, yes. Um, Qatar is a really interesting example because we have this notion, um, particularly in the West, uh, that because it's a Gulf Arab country that women are, are highly um, invisible, that they're tucked away and that they're, um, you know, covered in um, uh, abayas or you know other other forms of uh, female coverings um but in fact in Qatar women are very much out in the open including um sex workers in a lot of the western um hotel bars uh, it's it's quite common um to see sex workers working in these higher end places uh who are not arab women they uh, generally are coming from um asia and southeast asia um however what people don't realize is that uh, only 4%, 4% of the population in uh, Qatar, um, or I'm, I'm sorry, 6% of the population in Qatar uh, are actual Qatari citizens. So 94% of the, the people there are actually foreigners, they're expats, um, they're laborers, uh, and up to 60% of the population actually uh, are men living in labor camps, and they have horrible conditions. We're starting to see a lot of protests and calls for boycotts for the World Cup, which will be starting um, in, in just another week or so there, uh, because 7,000 men uh, have died in the process of building um, those Stadiums, and they have died from poor working conditions and also essentially just being worked to death um, in the heat. And so, you know, there is a very tragic case of a 17-year-old boy uh, from Nepal who died after um, two months of working in the incredible uh, heat and uh, awful sanitary conditions. They're often also... Um, denied adequate food and water, and he died of a heart attack. And that it's just not normal for, you know, teenage boys um, to drop over dead from heart attacks. So um, there's a, a way in which Qatar and their significant labor abuses um, have really, really tarnished, um, I think, the, uh, the World Cup and uh, FIFA in general right now. Gregory, as a side note, I want to ask you this question. As you're covering this important topic, and we're about to let our audience know how they can get the book, one thing that, that people cannot deny is your role in all of this, the travel, the observations. Did you know going in that it would be so much about also your experience with this as well? Um, I really didn't. 
um, because I had sort of fallen uh, in into this, uh, because I had been working on one project, and then as I began to sort of chase after all of these stories and all of these headlines, the project just started getting bigger and bigger because I kept running into, you know, more examples. Um, and so, and the deeper I got into it, though, the more personally um, affected I was by, you know, some of the things that I was seeing. Um, I talk in the book about, you know, one of the sex workers who was um, raped and then the police were uh, coming after her because she was going to testify and they abducted her and tortured her. And so I worked with colleagues to uh, move her um, around our various apartments and get her into a safe house and um, get her children out of the country. And so, um, you know, I certainly was not expecting as a, a social scientist and academic uh, that I would find myself, uh, you know, um, trying to do this this sort of work uh, that would take me into these kinds of circumstances. So I certainly didn't anticipate it, but um, obviously it became, um, you know, the topic became very close to me and I became very involved uh, with it. So with that, the reason I want to ask you that question, Gregory, is so I could ask you this question, and that is, as you were doing this research, having these observations, you know, sharing this information with us in this book, uh, Panics Without Borders, what did you learn about yourself? And, and what do you hope readers learn about them not just being bystanders as well and yeah. actually doing whatever they can? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I learned um, about my myself <laughs> that, uh, you know, that I actually had it in me. It's it's funny being uh, an ethnographer because you're talking to people for a living, but I was actually um, very shy <laughs> back in 2006 when I started. Uh, and, you know, this is the kind of thing where you really are talking to strangers and, and yeah. that means sex workers, but it also means, you know, I've interviewed many clients. I've interviewed uh, sex traffickers. I've interviewed pimps. Um, and, uh, you know, having to, to go through that um, and realizing that it's all about um, being able to um, forge respectful relationships um, uh, in order to get the, the information in order to hopefully uh, make social change uh, and to improve the policies uh, that cities have, host cities, um, when they have these events. And there's going to be a really important opportunity for that because the next World Cup um, after this one, so in four years, is being hosted by the United States uh, in 11 different cities. Uh, a couple of cities in Canada and a couple of cities in Mexico. So this jointly hosted men's FIFA World Cup, um, uh, when we have that next one, I think we're going to see a lot uh, of these same things. We're going to see a lot of police asking for more money. We're going to see a lot of panics about who is coming over the Mexican uh, border and whether there's um, sex trafficking. And then I think we'll see uh, a lot of... Um, organizations um, really profiting off of it, what we sometimes term the rescue industry. Interesting. It is a fascinating look at this world, uh, Gregory, and I'm so glad to have you on it. I mean, it's definitely a different perspective than I think a lot of people would take. But I think it also would will help us as what I thought as a reader was helping us look past the headlines 
and look past what is being said and actually look at what what's being done. And I think a lot of times we we've gotten so immune because we think it's we're apart from it. We don't think we just hear these things and think, oh, that's bad, or you know that kind of thing. Instead of looking at the why and looking at the what's behind it. I think, and that's why this book is so important. Again, everyone, Gregory Mitchell has been our guest. Panics Without Borders is the book, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths About Sex Trafficking. It's available through our friends at Amazon.com. You all can get it there. It's published by University of California Press. And, Gregory, how can our audience stay connected with you? Um, So I am on Twitter uh, at at Border Panic, Um, but GregoryMitchell.net is uh, my uh, personal website and there's contact information there for me as well as um, links to the books and also um, more information um, about uh, my uh, academic background and contact information. All right. Well, Gregory, congratulations to you again. So glad we had a chance to chat today and looking forward to our next conversation together. Oh, thank you. It was, it was my pleasure. And we thank your audience for tuning in to another great segment of Conversations Live. Until next time, I'm your host, Cyrus Webb, saying as always, enjoy your day, enjoy your life, enjoy your world. Thank you all for choosing Conversations Live. Now let's go make today amazing. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.